0: Welcome to The Big Van Theory. Anne, welcome to The Big Van Theory.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Good to have you here.
1: Well, it's good to be asked.
0: I always ask people, in 30 seconds or less, can you explain who you are, what you do, and why you're qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about?
1: So my name is Anne Jones. I am the category manager for Beers, Wines and Spirits at Waitrose. Um, And what that means is I look after all of the customer facing engagement work and representing what the buyers do to our customers. So I look after our virtual events, tastings, our specialist training and various other commercial propositions, including our wine tasting at home proposition. Whether that makes me qualified or not to be of any great use is another, is a moot point and I, I will leave everyone else to make their minds up on that at the end.
0: I think that that definitely makes you qualified. Um, So going a little bit off piste before we even start any of the questions. um, Can you tell us a bit about the wine at home thing? Because I think that's quite interesting.
1: Yeah, it's been great, actually. So we've got a wonderful team of specialists, um, some of whom are uh, really, really engaged and whether they're based in store or not is is a moot point, but they develop these wonderful relationships with their customers. Um, And we've for a while wondered how we can maximize that, that relationship building in a way that's tangible and human. Um, Funnily enough in a world that was becoming ever more virtual and online, what what was our point of difference? we have these, Um, WSET qualified specialists so we started off uh, with a proposition that involved effectively customers uh, specialists going into customers homes the wine would arrive the day before the specialist turns up on the day with um, their you know their food and everything else and they run a tasting with a kind of food and wine pairing uh, for the customer in the comfort of their own home Um, and then off they go helping clear up the mess before they leave Um, and it's much more complicated than it sounds to do something like that Um, But we got there and it was going extremely well. Um, And then of course we had COVID, but fortunately the wine tasting at home brand um, pivoted quite nicely into uh, taking that proposition online. Um, So it's it's, again, not come without its logistical challenges because in the old days, one group of 20 people was one delivery to one house. And now it could potentially be 20 deliveries to 20 houses. So um, it's changed some of the dynamics, but it's much easier for our specialists to deliver. They don't have to worry about uh, doing their breathalyzer texts before they can leave. All of our kind of duty of care issues are much easier when someone's sitting in a studio or in their own home, delivering a fantastic experience for customers and it's live and engaging. And we have different formats, anything from a family getting together um maybe three or four households at the same family all the way up to large-scale webinars or festivals where we're having thousands of people um coming to something that may be maybe more brand-led so yeah we've got this whole range of virtual events and it's it's been really exciting
0: and have you seen it convert into extra sales or is that not really the point of it
1: um we have but it's not the point um the it's well it is the point in the long term but it's about driving loyalty and making fit customers feel really engaged and really special and, and feel that we are the trusted place for them to go to get advice on what they might enjoy um so actually direct sales the, the idea is that that these things should be commercially viable without the direct sales and then we build that into something that is meaningful commercially for where where customers are getting a real genuine engagement, we would we would never try and sell a specific wine off the back of um, of, of a session.
0: Okay, first question, um, which I remember texting you after I had it in my stage one uh, um, <laughs> assessment: Our supermarkets Are supermarkets a force for good in the wine trade? Are you good or are you evil?
1: well as i I've, i think i've also said this to you and, and on many an occasion the answer to every single question is it depends um so yes of course we're a force for good and no we might not be a force for good um and it absolutely depends on the context and
0: so would you, in context would you say that waitress is ever evil <laughs>
1: uh, no i would definitely not but i would say that i would say that there are some some suppliers or some producers for whom we wouldn't be the right outlet for example um and so it's about being a force for good and innate, ensuring that we work with the right people so that we can be a force for good um so i think if i were answering a question on this um, i would probably look at it through different different lenses so for, for a producer for example it would depend on your positioning so actually if somebody wanted um, a really sustainable high volume of of um, reliable sales that they could just keep ticking over um, then yes absolutely a force for good if you're a tiny producer that wants to sell you know three cases of one vintage and 20 cases of the next vintage and then 500 cases of the next vintage um, and then back to two again maybe a supermarket's not the right place Um, so I think yeah it absolutely depends And, and so supermarkets as a whole I think I would also be very careful when answering a question on this to look at the global context. Uh, but in the UK and in the EU, they're very highly regulated. So actually, now there—I I would say we were always a force for good, obviously. But I'm not sure you've, you're in a position to be anything but. Um, and also, more importantly, we've got access to customers, and that's that's what every producer wants to I be. Mean, there's no value to making a wine if you haven't sold it, and if no one's going to drink it. Um, and so, for it's about how we uh, how we take those customers with us on that wine journey, um, and whether we do or whether we don't, looking at different supermarkets, um, and and what actually we we deliver what the customer wants. So that's whether that's value, convenience, value for money at whatever price point it is, or whether it's on-prem or whether it's uh, you know a great engaging wine tasting at home experience. Actually, we we we're that interface between the consumer and the supplier stroke producer stroke distributor so um and we can be a force for good because you know with what's the phrase from spider-man with great power comes great responsibility actually if you're looking to make for example changes to sustainability or changes to ethics uh there's a lot more value in a supermarket pushing for change through a whole supply chain and making an enormous difference by making a small tweak than there is to potentially a very small producer doing something that may feel uh, of great magnitude on a small vineyard, but actually potentially has a much lesser impact to to the world as a whole. So, you know, it depends.
0: Are you just, you're just gonna say, it depends to everything now, yeah?
1: Uh, Well, it is the answer to everything. (laughs) (laughs) If any MW student wants the answer to everything, it's, it depends.
0: uh fine well so in, in terms of sustainability that leads on quite nicely to the next business uh, paper for question <laughs> um so consider the growth in demand for vegan organic and sustainable wines what can and should the wine industry be doing in response um and is there anything specifically that that waitrose or, or you are, are are doing uh
1: yes and no no I'm joking um <laughs> yes obviously i think uh sustainability is is probably the biggest it depends uh, where you need to really tighten up your definitions because if you were to be writing an essay on it it's very easy to tie yourself in in considerable knots. So for example is veganism a sustainable choice? You could argue that it is Uh, but actually when it comes to wine is making a wine vegan or vegetarian? Uh, Does that have an impact on what consumers might view as sustainability is is another matter. So you would need to define sustainability as to whether that's ethics, whether it's dietary, whether it's carbon footprinting, whether it's water usage, and all of those other elements that that come together. Um, And I guess where I have a word of of caution with that question um, is to make sure that you would have a statistic to demonstrate that consumer demand is actually growing for sustainable wines. I think there's an enormous amount of noise uh, for the absolutely the right reasons. Um, But actually, when it comes to consumers choices on shelf, um, price, value, quality, will I like it, um, still come above sustainability when it comes to, to comes to choices. So as a wine industry, this leads me on to what we can and should do. We have to make sure that we are doing the right thing for sustainability without compromising quality, value, taste. So, I, I mean, I, I believe in this very strongly. So I'm on the YGB Sustainability Committee. I'm speaking at the Future of Wine Forum on Sustainability about some of the things that we can do as an industry and that, that, that we should do, that it's our kind of civil duty to do. Um, but actually, how we do that as an industry is currently very fragmented.
0: How data-driven is um, what you do as a job or, and also you know what, what waitros do and what kind of data do you collect on on wine buyers i mean obviously i imagine it's fairly large amounts especially with stuff like your loyalty schemes etc what are you what do you collect how do you use it and what trends are you seeing
1: so we are very data-led um, obviously as you'd expect um we almost have so much data that you don't know what to do with it that you know that there's lies damn lies and statistics um we're very data-led when it comes to uh sales listings, very kind of commercial decisions. And then we also spend a lot of time um, overlaying uh, quantitative analysis. So doing focus groups, asking customers questions with the quantitative analysis of the data to try and see uh, what's happening now and where consumer mindsets might want to be moving. So going back to the previous question about sustainability, it's, it's quite interesting that consumers say that they care very much about sustainability but actually when it comes down to purchasing choices, it's, it's quite low down in wine compared to other categories. Um, and so therefore we would then interrogate that data with our customer insight teams and with our um, analysis teams to see what that means for our decisions. Um, so I think weight choice as a whole, very data-driven, particularly when it comes to buying. Um, my job is to Step back a little bit from that day to day and have a slightly more longer term view of, of what the data can only tell you the past. Data data can indicate the future, but it 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 needs to be led also. So um, data led and led and leading the data. So my job is to take a little bit of a step back from the the day to day reactions to what we what we see um, coming through our kind of weekly reporting daily reporting and to look at those those longer term trends for example sustainability it's not screaming in the data now that we should suddenly have you know we should delist uh you know some extremely well-renowned brand because they can't guarantee to us that they're going to continue to be suitable for vegans for every conceivable vintage from now on currently the data is not in a point at a point that that would indicate that that would be the right decision to make Um, however we are then going to take a look at what it is we need to have in place as a strategy to ensure that we are dealing with what customers want in the in the long term as well as the as well as the short term.
0: So how do you inform that um, long-term decision obviously studying for the MW and (laughs) <laughs> yeah. uh, I, mean, like, uh, helps. Um, I mean how do you, how do you inform that is is that partly intuitive is that partly looking at other countries what what sort of steps do you go through to um, do those longer term plans
1: so we spend quite a lot of time looking at uh, it, it depends on the proposition so say for example we were to be looking at a um let me try and find an example that's not not too true to life but say, say we wanted to reinvent something or to invent a new um a new kind of stream of events or something, we would pull together some experts um, and that would include somebody from customer insight and from analysis. So we'd have the data, the the data is always the starting point. Um, And then we bring in subject matter experts. So I might, for example, pull in somebody with a great e-commerce piece of expertise uh, to, to share that with us. We would get potentially some customer and competitor reviews Uh, especially looking abroad as you say to different markets where where um, the direction of travel might be a bit different Um, and also pulling in expertise that we have within our own team that's experience study breeding you know we've got a a team of huge experience and dedication which we're very lucky to have and so I think there's there's no um, there's there's no there's no right answer Um, but it is important to make sure that that all of the data is is uh, it has to be data led, but you're are using data to prove your instinct sometimes as well as to as well as to disprove it. So it's trying to find uh, a considered and strategic way of balancing uh, insight and data.
0: In terms of brand loyalty, um, how brand loyal do you find your customers are, either to specific brands that you sell, or different categories within it, or just even to the waitros? brand itself? And what do you do to drive that? Does social media play a part? How do you how do you um, drive brand loyalty?
1: So brand loyalty is a very interesting one, we going back to the data question, we do have loyalty trackers, we can see how if a customer normally picks one brand, if that brand's not available, does that mean they move to the next brand that's on promotion? Uh, Or do they move to the next brand that looks most similar? Or do they walk away? Um, so we do have. There are customers with a lot of brand loyalty, um, but I think the, the the question here is often how do you define a brand? So I think we would always define a brand, you and I, and many other people um, on who I'm sure are listening to this, as Jacobs Creek or Campo Um But actually, to many customers, they still won't necessarily have. have have heard of it to that level. So there's brands like that, or there's a brand like Ryoka or a brand that's Shavly. Um and actually overriding all of that is the fascia above the door. So our customers expect us to have made that choice for them. They um <laughs> I don't know if I should say this in so many words, but we talk a lot about um about the the there's they're selling people something they need, in which case they need to trust that you're not going to be shit. And then they're selling them something that they, re- that they may not even know they need or that they maybe just want or that we can make them want. And that's about engaging and inspiration and making bringing people on a journey and getting them involved and educating them and, you know, getting them fully engaged in the category. Um, and those two things that that balance between engagement and don't be shit is where customers come to the brand loyalty for the name above the door. So if, if they come in wanting a tin of beans, they, they need to trust that Waitrose, they can come in, they get a tin of beans, it's, it's good value, it's where it says it is, it's on the shelf where it should be. And there will be customers for whom buying wine falls into that, that behavior. And then there are other customers who want to come in and browse and they trust us to have a breadth of range and to have something really exciting, something a bit different to have something new that they can try. And so we've got, uh, we, we would like to think we've got more of those customers. Uh, in terms of proportions to our competitive set. Um, And so that's where we can encourage people to um, shop in the reassurance of the Waitrose brand, as opposed to the brand name on the bottle, potentially.
0: You do have some quite hilarious essentials items in your own range, (laughs) like creme brulee and elderflower ironing water, all of which I've bought and are really good. But um, what what kind of percentage uh, of your wine list is is private label. Um, do you advertise that? Is that something that's growing? Um, is it or is it something that you're sort of kind of shying away from?
1: Uh, definitely not shying away from it. Um, we, uh, we have a relatively low percentage of our own label products. Um, uh, in terms of numbers of lines, it's low in terms of volume of sales, actually, it's, it's a little bit higher than that. Um, but what's interesting is, I think, we have some quite clear tiers, but we breadth of range is so important to our customer base and to us um, that ha- that choice is the key. So it's about making sure that there's there's options for for the different occasions that each of our customers come in for. So for example, we may have a customer who wants to buy our uh, one of our mid-tier um, clarets and that's their afternoon drinking, but actually maybe they do want Ponte Cano um, at the weekend and they can get that from us too at a good price. Um, so there's, there are, well, we have three different tiers. We have our, um, our entry level, that's what it says on the tin, here's, you know, plush and fruity, whatever it is. This is, you know, they, they can trust us cause it says Waitrose on the label. And that's where we come to the private label piece. It says Waitrose, you can trust it. Then we have our blueprint range, which is classic examples. So a classic New Zealand your blog classic claret classic chianti and they should all be absolutely the best examples that they can be fresh easy to drink well defined well structured um and exceptional value and then we have our top tier uh waitress number one which is kind of in partnership with some really top top winemakers um and they should be you know really really good examples so we've got you know a latour burgundy we've got um we'd be working with uh, winemakers who have got a genuinely global reputation um and then equally we've got a couple of quirky ranges as well for customers who want to branch out but don't necessarily have the confidence to do it by themselves so we've got a range called um loved and found where we'll have um, a marcelan a pais uh sparkling pecorino you know just just things are a little bit off the beaten track uh, and we're always looking for something new and actually they've been immeasurably successful because customers can say oh i've never heard about great variety but it's got waitrose on it and it's it's not too expensive so i'll give it a go and that's one of our ways to help customers experiment and move on potentially from branded wines with confidence and then the lovely Xenia urban mw also has her quirky little range called on the qt which is just for waitrose cellar which are limited edition bottles uh often just one barrel of some stuff that's really really obscure so uh, for example, she got a wonderful wine off Norrell Robertson MW. She's got some great sherries. you know, they and they're properly quirky. So, yeah, everything from bog standard to super quirky. Um, so our private label offering therefore differs from a lot of our competitors in that sense.
0: What are the main considerations when selling to a large supermarket? And are there any specific um, quirks to selling to Waitrose?
1: I'm sure there are many. <laughs> Um, I would say, in some ways, I feel not as qualified to answer this question as some other people, purely because I don't necessarily consider us to be a large supermarket. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're only five, but well, we're only five percent market share. You know, I know people think we're big, but it's that's that's pretty um, well as a as a, as a grocer. Our wine market share is absolutely flying. We're up kind of eight, you know, above eight percent. For wine, and in some categories where we're looking at, you know, champagne, we're outperforming the market in double figures. You know, we've got we've got a lot of a lot of areas where we we do have that large influence, but as a general rule, uh, we don't quite have the clout that uh, you know the Tescos of this world have. Um, but I think the main considerations that people forget. So the thing I think I find myself explaining more to anyone as is that there's a lot of wine in the world and there's not very much space on a shelf. And so if you're trying to get a new listing, that probably means that somebody else has to be delisted because you can't put everything on a shelf. Um, And therefore, you need to understand and have a think about what your point of difference is against the other products on shelf. Is there a range gap that we can help, that that, that you with your brand can help help us hide? So do you think, for example, that we should have an unoaked Chardonnay from Lamari, and actually we've got two oaked ones um, and then present that case to the buyer or do you think you could do better quality at a better price than somebody else so I think that's the hard the hard commercial reality of selling well that's just not a supermarket that's to any shop you know shops can't stock everything Um, so what's your genuine point of difference and believe me it is never soil Ever.
0: <laughs> it's one of my big bugbears. Every time someone starts talking about their wine, they just talk about the fucking soil. <laughs> it's like... Yeah,
1: it's 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 not soil. It's probably not a combination of tradition and modernity. No, exactly. So, points of difference. Um, and then there is obviously the question that everyone wants to always hear is is volumes. But um we we do have a slightly different approach to some other others is that we we do some parcels of fine wines we do have uh wines that are only only on waitrose cellar so a single barrel or just in a few shops um where we can create something that's got a bit more of a buzz around it so if it's something that's genuinely interesting and quirky and gives us all you know a reason to live and a passion for the trade that we're in then you know we the, the buyers do look at it but on a on a kind of day in day out basis um the commercials need to be stronger than most people who approach us understand. I get I mean I probably get a fact to be fair, wine is not the worst. I mean I must get twenty or thirty LinkedIn messages a week from someone wanting to present their gin to us. And I'm not even the buyer. So I'm just constantly saying I'm not the buyer. The buyer makes the decisions. Buyer makes the decisions. Um but the buyer doesn't have time to answer everybody. Because he's also getting fifty approaches a week. So if he was answering one hundred twenty emails or however many it is a week just from people saying, "Please stop my gin," um, we'd be doing not very much other work, which is kind of the core of the business. So I think there's there's the, there's also that that understanding of what the buyer is looking for, and I think that's why why people why a lot of supermarkets um, tend to uh, focus their sourcing through distributors and we 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 do use distributors obviously we have we have a, a lot of uh, very strong relationships with them. But we also do have some ones that come from direct from producer and more so than any of our competitors. Um, but you know, it's it's a lot more work doing it that way.
0: I know this is a sort of unanswerable question, but I'll ask it anyway. Great. <laughs> what's in, in just like finger in the air? What's kind of the minimum volume someone would have to produce? and be able to sell to you every year to make it worth both your while?
1: I mean, yeah. So we could just say one one barrel, but as I've always said, everything depends. But I would say if you're looking at a kind of average retail price point, obviously also, interestingly, if anyone is doing a question on supermarkets and has not looked up the grocery supplier code of practice, I suggest you look it up. It's a very important set of uh, regulations about what uh, supermarkets can and can't do, and the amount of essays I've seen with old examples quoted as new of something that actually would currently be illegal is is not good. So yeah, take take a look at that. But I'd say probably uh, I don't know thirty thousand cases. It could be as low as twenty thousand cases if it's if it's cheap. At in, at at the more the at the more value end of our range, maybe fifty thousand cases. and that's cases of six. I hasten to add. um But yeah, I would. It it it, it depends. <laughs> so I, I I'll plump at thirty thousand cases of six.
0: That's that's pretty small, like for. Yeah, that's that's more small, that's smaller than I expected.
1: Yeah, it. I, I mean, obviously, we've got something like our San Leo Prosecco. Then we're. Tanking through far more than that, but actually we we want differentiation. We don't want to have the same as everyone else in the market. And so yes, we'll have some big brands where volume and consistency are the absolute watchwords. But we want to have things that have a point of difference and that customers can't get anywhere else, and that keeps them excited, keeps them interesting, and keeps us all interested as well. To be fair, so I mean, if if you were to look at some of the stuff on our press tasting and. There was a recent article from decanter you know that there's always something that's intriguing and maybe it's a fine wine parcel where we you know we, we can't even get that kind of volume so I th- that we do have a bit more flexibility than some of the really big guys
0: now you work across all the different categories what are the similarities and differences in sourcing marketing and selling beers wines and spirits in a supermarket setting or particularly in waitrose because you obviously do lots of um local locker listings and stockings which is which is a little bit different uh you know what are the what are the challenges what are the differences what do the different categories do better than others that's quite open-ended sorry that is quite an
1: open-ended question i do i do see what you're saying so um, when you say all categories for i mean much as i love food as we both know um fortunately i don't represent food and general merchandise and things uh look after drinks so we do have our um local and regional which effectively means that we stock products that are produced within 30 miles of their shop um within that shop and potentially direct delivered to the shop um, and that works for wine and also for beers and spirits. Um, what would I say are the differences? I think um, fragmentation of wine is still pretty high compared to spirits. Actually, I can speak to one uh, um, company for spirits and have a broad portfolio of products that, if you wanted to do, you know, an event, you could pull together something pretty comprehensive. Only speaking to a couple of people. Um, And also, uh, because of that, there's more investment to be had from the spirits companies. And as the the beer um, category uh, consolidates a little bit, that's probably the case as well. Um, I I think there's generally both the beer and the and soft drinks and spirits are um, slightly more commercial than wine than the wine producers and wine suppliers. And that That's a very interesting thing, because commercial is one of those words that um, can be extremely positive or extremely negative, depending on who you speak to. Um, And I always think that the wine trade tends to think that being commercial is is a little bit of a dirty secret, like, oh, oh, no, someone's made some money. That's outrageous. (laughs) Um, And I think um, that is something we probably need to get over as an industry if we're going to if we're going to really thrive through the next few decades
0: what's the solution to that or do we just have to let the old people fuck off (laughs) 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 well i mean what's what's the solution because there there are some there are some commercial brands i mean obviously the margins are always still smaller i mean i don't think uh, you know it's a price sensitive category but i don't think that's all it is because craft beer is doing well premium gin's doing well which it wasn't there's there's definitely i don't think
1: it's that either there's definitely scope and it's interesting because um it's not it's, it's not even I'm going to take you take you back. If we're gonna talk about sexism later, I'm gonna take t- take you up on your ageism here as well, because it's not just the old people. <laughs> um there's a there's very much a feeling that small is beautiful, um, which in most cases is, is true. Um in terms of small producers. We all we all know that it's a much more holistic and engaging experience to go to a small producer and feel, you know, and feel the love of the land and the generations passed on for, you know, and that attention to detail. But actually, when you look at someone, for example, like Miguel Torres and his commitment to sustainability, um, you know, brands can be a force for good as well. And commercial, properly commercial brands, because actually, if you're going to make a difference, then that usually takes investment. And in order to invest in something, you need to be making some money. Um, So how do do we change that? I, I I guess I will be interested to see how the sustainability debate moves forward. And if there's something within that that can... Um, shine a light on what is good production and good business, uh, size notwithstanding.
0: Now, in terms of uh, talking about data and, and big brands and, and being sort of commercial, um, one of the things I wanted to ask was, have you seen any trends or data from people going from big commercial brands and then trading up or getting into other wines? Uh, your Wine at Home programme might have seen some of that, or you might have some customer data on it or it may just be one of those myths that 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 doesn't really happen Uh, do you have any input
1: uh the, the the short answer is um no i don't have any data um i don't have any uh reliable numbers for that i mean i will go away and look at them and if i find if i can find any i'll share them with you to share back with your wide and i'm sure fast-growing audience
0: yeah, 22 um, 22 of them <laughs> 23 maybe okay. if you listen to this i can just edit you in it's fine
1: okay fine if, if i can find some data well i think um, i think i i i think the challenge that i've got is that we like to think of consumers as purchasing in a in a linear fashion and we think of somebody you know, starts off buying this kind of product and then moves to that buying product and that and humans aren't like that. I think we that you know if again if you're um, looking at uh, essay writing things it's worth looking at some behavioural economics. But, um, you know, humans buy based upon their mood and based upon the occasion they're going to serve it out and how it's going to make them look and whether there at home and you know one thing that I'm, I'm going to be fascinated by is the more research and the more um, data we have about what's happened uh, during COVID and during lockdowns obviously figures are flying for uh, off-trade buying retail but it's, it's interesting when people are, are buying for themselves and they're not buying for how it looks to somebody else um, and whether that will have changed the the dynamics of purchasing behavior I think will be will be fascinating to keep an eye on um because it may be that if we move people on from drinking brands all we're doing them is moving them to another brand but that brand might be shabbily a brand you know it's it's people it's almost people buy wine in order to reinforce their own personal brand um and so i'm sorry i'm so sorry but it depends <laughs> <laughs> so for example i might have moved on from i i've Maybe, maybe once upon a time, I would have liked to buy Via Maria Sauvignon. And then I might have moved to buying the Ned. And then I might learn more about wine. and I might want to buy a single vineyard expression from Simon Waghorn. Um, and then I might decide that Sauvignon Blanc doesn't fit with my, my personal brand. And so I might uh, you know, have a similar journey with Chenin or Albarino. Um, but then I might go into the shop one day and it might be just be me at home and I might be getting a takeaway. And I might just think, actually do you know what I don't want to go to the wine fridge I've got some fantastic wine in there but I don't really want to open a great bottle I can't be bothered to get the core of it out actually do you know what bottle of beer maria saving us fine for tonight
0: there's a lot of mites there I feel like it's that's a snapshot into your life a little bit <laughs>
1: well there we go my life's my life's changed as well it's a funny how when you come off the amount of times I've done I've been doing tastings or zoom tastings with people and um and you've got something actually particularly with cocktails so forgive me this is a slight divergence but I've spent quite a lot of time doing doing obviously virtual events and you finish make having made four or five cocktails and and infusing about them at length on zoom and you come out of it and you do just think. I still got a glass of that Albarino in the fridge. (laughs) Suddenly the complicated, very expensive whiskey actually doesn't look quite so appealing as a nice chilled glass of relatively average Albarino. And so I I, I guess extrapolating from personal experience is never a great way of looking at data. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that customers don't purchase in a linear way. It's all based upon occasion and it's all based upon uh, multifaceted decision-making processes. Um, and brand is only one of those sorry I could I could just whitter on for ages about that
0: that sounded really rehearsed I like that one <laughs> that was a great well, answer.
1: I, think, I think that sentence I probably said before the rest of it before that not so not so good but no the, the, the decision trees it's always worth going away looking at decision trees but mostly customers will have made a certain number of decisions before they enter a shop um, quite basic ones to begin with like do I want a bottle uh, or a box or a Magnum. Do I want white or red? Um, so some, and in some cases, brand is so important that it will have come before they even walk into the shop. Uh, but it's what what happens at shelf, which is then the next stage of that decision making process. Um, and that's where there's a chance to move people away from brands. But equally, you know, why should we? If that's what a customer wants and that's what a customer likes, then you know, who are we to tell them that they're wrong?
0: Nice. Nice. that's really egalitarian of you <laughs>
1: thanks <laughs> i just want people to be happy
0: <laughs> you're a force for good we, were, uh, we, we discussed this uh, yeah <laughs> how has 2020 affected you um and how do you see the future so brexit and covid and also anything else
1: when you said you were mindful of time, you have just dropped in the biggest question of, of <laughs> oh, just just casually drop Brexit through there as well. Not a problem.
0: Yeah, because obviously COVID has been a catalyst amongst all other things for how consumers change. And I don't see it going back. Um, no. So, yeah, how has that changed to you? can you get me a waitrose delivery slot that's another question i would <laughs> um, so yeah
1: i like i think you're quite you're quite um, mobile enough to get yourself to a shop bob
0: <laughs> maybe
1: maybe <laughs> um i i mean it's been a, it's been an incredible year hasn't it it's been i mean an incred- by incredible i mean unbelievable we would never have thought 12 months ago that that we'd be in the position that we're in now um it's you know there have been silver linings in as much as it's it has um fast forwarded remote working it's fast forwarded a flexibility uh better understanding i think of of different people's circumstances and it has enabled us to get support for example our virtual proposition which frankly we've been screaming into the wind trying to get some support to be able to do things virtually and online for some time Um, And it's, you know, people have accelerated people, you know, to remember the word of April was pivoting, Um, everyone (laughs) was pivoting, everyone was pivoting frantically, but it, it, you know, things changed and changes accelerated. And that, that is a good thing. Um, And equally, you know, I can't deny the fact that we've seen some absolutely stellar sales figures um, of customers buying some pretty nice kit um, from us, but equally, you know, I've, you and I, we've got huge numbers of very close friends in industries that have been much harder hit, um, whether that be hospitality or or the music industry or events. Um, And so I think, you know, there there've been some really sad losses and some very challenging situations. Um, So yeah, it's, it's been a mix. Um, And then Brexit is, um, is, I think, You know, who knows, frankly, I think, you know, everyone's preparing um, for all eventualities. I think everyone's trying to be trying to be as good as we can possibly be, um, as prepared as we can possibly be, and as fair to our suppliers as we can possibly be. And I think that's that's one of the key, um, the key things is trying to make sure that we all work together to come up with the the best possible solution. but without clarity on what what that is, you know, I think we, we're all just preparing preparing for the worst and hoping for the best.
0: So, is there anything internally that's going to be changing? So, I know you've mentioned before the uh, the, the, the supermarket legislation that's UK and EU based. Um, obviously, there are auditing companies which which um, which may or may not have an impact. In, in le- or are you just going to keep all your regulations exactly the same as they are now?
1: we're preparing for various different eventualities so at the moment i couldn't tell you that one way or the other because we don't know <laughs> because we don't know we're preparing for different eventualities that, that you know that that is the best that i think any any business can do now but i think the important thing is that you are preparing for those eventualities and and try and not sticking your head in the sand uh,
0: and finally i wanted to ask you um not just because you're a woman but there is that so in, is sexism an issue in the world of wine do you think this is partly in relation to um the new york times recent report uh but you know in the uk market how have you seen that in the off trade i mean waitrose has always struck me as a particularly inclusive kind of company and obviously you've been incredibly successful there well, not that that means it's not sexist of course but but yeah i mean you've always you've always done very well so is it uh, how do you see the, the sexism in, in the world of wine in the uk um how can we make the um the industry more diverse and what should we be doing
1: So I I've got multiple views on this I think we've come a long way I think there has been a lot of sexism um, and indeed there continues to be particularly I think in hospitality and the and the on trade Um, the off trade is not anywhere near as bad as it used to be but things have changed a lot since I first joined the wine buying team in Waitrose in 2008 you know I was quite often you know the amount of times you'd go in what we call helping hands in shops at Christmas and somebody would you know push you out the way to get to you know some old bloke uh, because they assumed the old bloke by necessity had to know more about wine than you did Um, and you know we've we've all had that Um, and frankly the music industry was worse. Um, My concern my, my biggest concern I think with sexism in the wine industry is actually at a leadership level um, I think that we are getting better and better representation, and that, frankly, we're not the minority with the biggest problem um, in terms of overall numbers. Um, but I think we're now at a dangerous point uh, of looking at those numbers and extrapolating. Whereas when you look at senior leadership roles, um, it, female representation is is a lot is a lot uh, leaves a lot lot uh, to be desired. And so there are questions I think that each company needs to answer for themselves, which are, you know, is it around the fact that women have taken time off to have children and not been able to get back? Or is it actually to do with a culture of what are perceived to be leadership behaviours? And I think there's still a lot of work to be done around language um, and around leadership styles and what, what's perceived to be a good leadership style. Um, and if you look at Dame Sharon White, who's come in to be... Um, the, the chairman of the John Lewis partnership her style is is very different to what we've had before and it's, it's ex- incredibly successful and has been especially through the pandemic and there's there's nothing that you'd want to pick apart as being you know masculine or feminine because that language is it's, is kind of dangerous in its own way um, but I think it has been it has been a, a long heritage of uh, you know what's that joke? In fact, Pier Paolo you who is you may know, MW, who's uh, the head of buying at the wine business, spirits, and waitros, he's he's always very strongly said that a he's a feminist, but also you know if if anyone dares call you bossy, just make sure they refer to it as leadership skills, um, because nobody calls a man bossy. They're allowed to be. they they have gravitas. They have you know, they have leadership skills. They can be domineering, perhaps. But actually, there's a lang- there's still a language that's used about the uh, derogatorily in both senses. Uh, I hasten to add, it's not just about, um, it's not just about saying that women shouldn't be, in, women don't get to be in leadership roles because of this. But equally, we're still probably, I suspect, underrepresented in PR by men. Um, but sexism is not our only problem. There's a, there's a huge mess under the carpet that, uh, I think the, the, the work in uh, with the MSs and indeed in the whisky industry, um, not least some other and some other, as we all know, there's been some other um, discussions recently. And I think actually they, these are all for good because it, this is generational change. None of this, I think, is going to be changed immediately. But we need to look at the, the slightly grubby under, underbelly and gradually start to all of us as an industry collectively move forward. Um, in a way that's responsible and respectful
0: okay <laughs> yeah I, don't, I can't really argue with any of that I don't think there's that's that's, um... <laughs> that's
1: <laughs> I, I'm so sorry did you want me to say something contentious
0: <laughs> no no I mean I, I'm perfectly capable of saying something quite contentious on my own but I think I
1: mean, <laughs> I mean feel free I, I'm very happily to take a take a kind of different view for you
0: no I think, I think now <laughs> is not the time to make a joke uh, uh, given, <laughs> given the nature of this subject But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but now I'm quite conscious of time and we're, what we're coming up to an hour so I'm, I'll let you get a bit rest of the, of the evening back. Is there anything that uh, you wanted to talk about for whatever reason that we haven't for whatever. No,
1: reason? I don't think so other than just to say I think this is a great idea and I wish that someone had thought of it when I was studying for theory. Um, but yeah, in general, the answer is always it depends.
0: <laughs> well i think that's a great note to end on so Anne, thank you so much
1: it's an absolute pleasure always good to talk to you
0: i know no really appreciate it but um hopefully we'll get you back on in i don't know january or something when nothing happens
1: yeah no problem i'll come up with some use- slightly more useful stats next time
0: awesome thank you so much
1: no problem take yeah. care bye, bye.